0: beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought
1: to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God, I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's prosperous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy.
0: Remember that it is your mind which creates you.
1: How are you doing?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Excellent. So you got your power back. Yep. Yeah, that must have been a sketchy time.
0: Yeah, it reminded me so much of what it must have been like, you know, in a very minor way, what it must have been like for the expedition people out on Wrangell Island wondering if anybody even knew that they were still alive and where they were. And if you know, anybody would come and rescue them.
1: Right, right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Toward the end of those four days, I had pretty much given up on anything happening.
1: Are you off the grid a little, like a little remote?
0: I am kind of remote. I'm not off the grid, but I'm pretty remote. And I was starting to think, ah, maybe this is the way of the future.
1: Yeah, you know, it's amazing how when, you know, a, a power outage... Um even one for 10 or 12 hours reminds you that the things like, you know, just heat where you're going to get your heat or uh, how are you going to boil water, uh, those things become in sharp focus. Here in northern Idaho, sometimes we'll have a power outage and all the lights will go out and I'll tell my wife, you know, let's just build a fire and light candles. And I'm sort of uh, a little bit bummed when the power comes back on <laughs> because you know, it kind of makes you slow down and turn off the television and and really just sort of be in the moment a little bit. But of course, that's romanticizing it when we're talking about survival, you know?
0: Yeah, I don't mind when the power goes out for 12 or 24 hours. But four days, I was, mm-hmm. I was starting to go a little stir crazy and wondering if it would ever come back on.
1: Yeah, that's scary.
0: It wasn't so much scary as it because i have plenty of wood and i have food and i can survive for a while anyway but then then you start to realize well maybe you never know maybe the world will stop and i'll have to walk into town or walk to visit friends miles away and start a, an entire new way of living
1: <laughs> yeah it would be like uh cormac mccarthy's the road <laughs> you know where, you know, you, you don't know if you're out there alone. Yeah. You don't know who else is around. Yeah. It's interesting. It does make you realize how much human connection matters and how interconnected we all are and, and need to be, I think.
0: Yeah. And to be prepared for life in a different way. Like we're so used to being able to go to the store and buy all the food we need. And, you know, if power went out completely all over the country food would run out very quickly. And we would be reduced to whatever we had on hand. And then, you know, things would get really sketchy.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, I, I realized my children, they're in their late 20s and-, and early 30s. But, you know, they've hardly ever even used a ma- an actual physical printed map, you know, they if their phones are dead, Like they don't really know where they are. It's kind of like, you know, we're too reliant on technology. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, books like empire of ice and stone or other Arctic adventure narratives remind you how important it is to, you know, be self-sufficient and know how to navigate where, you know, to figure out where you are in the world and, and how to read conditions so that you can stay safe and keep moving and, yeah, so many of these things uh, we take for granted.
0: Yeah, the uh, cell phone generation will be completely up the creek with without yeah. anything even remotely like a paddle,
1: <laughs> <laughs> rudderless. Yeah, and,
0: yeah. I don't even have a cell phone, but if power went out, I would be almost as uh, vulnerable as as everybody else because I don't have a a winter's food supply to fall back on. Wow. You know, I can understand the way some of these preppers think about survival, not that it's necessarily the government that's going to come and threaten us, but just reality.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I live in northern Idaho, where not far north of us is kind of a bastion or enclave for survivalists up near the Canadian border. And, you know, We sometimes like scoff a little bit at, like you say, because their position is more that anti-government, which, you know, I am not, but they're certainly more prepared in the event of, yeah, large outages where they're going to have, you know, a year or two supply of food on hand and generators and water. And on that note, I have to say, I, I was on a television show around 2010 to 12 called Brad Meltzer's Decoded and It was a History Channel show that looked into historical mysteries and some kind of light conspiracy theory. And one of the things we did was that episode on on Doomsday Preppers. And I actually spent the night somewhere near Indiana in an abandoned nuclear fallout shelter that has been converted into like a survival bunker. But it was like the guy was trying to sell... Condo space and it essentially it, it held like eighty people, but we had it all to ourselves. It was really freaky. I spent the night underground in this shelter, which was very well appointed. Uh, you know, I mean, it had a kitchen and bunks and everything, and it was really nice. But the whole concept was rather strange to me. You know that there are people who are thinking about this on the daily basis.
0: Yeah, it's a brave new world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't really want to think in those kind of terms although it could happen. It could happen anytime.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that we shot as part of that episode, which was really, uh, I actually thought about it this last weekend because I flew to LA to do another TV show thing. And as I was flying in at night, looking at all the lights that spread for, you know, 20, 30 miles in all directions, we did a sequence in which one of the other cast members and I, the premise was that there had been a massive power outage in LA for a couple of days. And then it turns out that there are some people who, there's like a roadway across the country of like caches all over the place. Uh, it, it, this is true. Some of these preppers have like a trail of caches of goods across the country heading toward these bunkers. And we just simulated what it would be like if it, it went out in LA and then we had to sort of bug out of there. And it was very you know, daunting. And we, we hiked up in Griffith Park up this big mountain and, you know, we had backpacks, we had to build a shelter. And you just kept thinking like, where would all these people go? You know, there's 20 million, 30 million in LA County, I think. It would be just, <laughs> it, it would be worse than the, uh than the survivors on Wrangell Island for sure, you know, because it would be carnage.
0: Oh, it would be mad carnage I mean Mm -hmm. LA is an insane place to begin with
1: (laughs) yeah 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 there's some there's some kind of motto that is like in in this kind of event it's it's 72 hours to murder (laughs) you know like that's about how long they can go without food and water before it's pitchforks and and uh you know
0: yeah yeah and cannibalism and
1: right (laughs) (laughs) wow we got dark soon there didn't we (laughs) Tonyo
0: yeah (laughs) Well, speaking of getting dark, yeah, let's dive into this story.
1: Yeah, I can't wait. It's uh, it's quite a whopper of a tale.
0: Yeah. So my guest is Buddy Levy. He's a professor of English and creative writing at Washington State University and an adventurer and writer of adventure and historical narratives. And he's the author of several books, including Labyrinth of Ice, the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition of 1881, which we talked about in depth almost exactly three years ago. And his new book that we'll be talking about today is Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Curluck in 1913. So, Buddy Levy, welcome back.
1: Donio, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: I went back and I listened to that last interview. And besides thoroughly enjoying the interview, it was really interesting how the Greeley Polar Expedition was very well planned out and very well organized. And in contrast, this expedition, this Kerlik Expedition, also known as the Canadian Arctic Expedition, actually started out very differently. Could you tell us about that?
1: Sure. That yeah, that's a great observation. You know, the Greeley expedition was a military one, and as such, things were incredibly detail oriented. There was paperwork and manifests and the food was measured down to the last tin of pemmican, and though it was so well planned with exigencies and backup plans for certain elements that if they went wrong. And what's so striking is that, you know, the Greeley expedition, the subject of labyrinth of ice ended up as a, you know, quite a categorical disaster with, you know, starvation and and reduced to cannibalism. And that was well planned. (laughs) And this trip, though on paper, uh, this man named Willimer Stephenson, the uh, expedition leader of the Canadian Arctic expedition, he had a lot of really well-organized plans, but they were thrown together very quickly. I'd say in about six to seven months, he put together one of the most ambitious scientific expeditions ever attempted, you know, certainly up to the time of 1913. And that ended up being a really big contributing factor to things going wrong early. And I say that because... In his mind, Stephenson knew exactly how everything should go if it went well. He had, you know, a, a three-ship armada, including the aforementioned flagship Karluk, um, which was a 30-year-old sealing and whaling vessel uh, and, a, and a salmon fishing vessel. And it really wasn't that suited for the conditions. And then, you know, he had all of these international scientists that convened first in Esquimalt, Canada, and then they they took ships up through the Bering Strait and up to northern Alaska and at Point Barrow. Then at that time, this is August of 1913, he's still getting gear and food and he's got the wrong men and the wrong gear and equipment and scientific equipment and food on the wrong ships. And the plan is to continue heading east to this little island above northern Alaska and Canada called Herschel Island, where they were going to rendezvous and then reorganize everything. And that ended up being a blunder because they get blown off course, uh, weather comes in, and all those well-laid plans, uh, well, I guess they were semi-well-laid plans, went awry. So
0: it seems... So cavalier, let's say, to allow something like that to happen to because they literally had their equipment and supplies kind of randomly dispersed amongst these three ships without any real sense of organization, which just seems like a disaster in the making.
1: Yeah, you know, I think Stephenson suffered from uh, a couple of character flaws. I mean, he's a really complex person, and I end up talking quite a bit about it. And, and in the epilogue of the book, I deal with Stephenson and Bartlett, who is the ice navigator and the captain who's hired to to sail the car look. I sort of juxtapose those two men and talk in depth about their characters. And, you know, Stephenson was quite. Brash, and he was very confident in his own abilities. He had just come back from four years living among native peoples above the Arctic Circle. So he felt really comfortable on the ice, but in small groups. And I think what he didn't quite understand, and it was in fact his first attempt at something of this magnitude, that when you have so many moving parts and so many disparate kinds of people all put together, thrown together quite quickly, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen. And, and of course you also can't count on the weather in the Arctic cooperating, uh, you know? And so I, I was a little surprised that he wanted to convene at Herschel Island instead of having all of the ships and, and separating all of the people and gear at Point Barrow, because at one point they were all together. And it seems like he just made a tactical error, figuring, you know, the weather when they took off from Point Barrow in early August was quite decent. And so I think he just got overconfident. And then, of course, as they take off, these three ships are, I mean, really literally within a day. Everything goes. I, I call it when things go south, up north, you know. <laughs> um, and <laughs> so it, it's really, uh, yeah. Within a day or two, the Karlek is cruising along, and they they've lost the other two ships, the the Alaska and the Mary Sacks, and now they're kind of at the whims and mercy of the weather. And, and then this is really just at the beginning of a very long, arduous ordeal. Yeah. So
0: it's interesting how Stephenson spent 4 years with native peoples way up in the north and he really thrived on that experience but it's very different living up in those extreme conditions with native people who have grown up in that environment and know how to not only how to survive but to live and even thrive up there and that's so different from trying to do that with Westerners from down south who are not used to that and are not conditioned to deal with those kind of conditions.
1: Absolutely. You're, you're so right, because, you know, um, Stephenson had adopted uh, a number of the techniques himself. I mean, he understood the importance of Arctic clothing and having fur and skin, mukluks, trousers, parkas with hoods and mittens. And he even went so far as to account for this by hiring in Point Barrow a family of Inuit people There was a husband, Kuriluk, and his wife, Kuruk, and their two children, who were only 11 and three, their two girls. They came along for their various skills. So I'll get to that. Uh, and then he hired three hunters, young hunters who were also, you know, excellent at dog sled driving, at navigating on ice, at hunting seals, at building igloos. And so he knew they would be really crucial to the expedition. But then again, he had on the Carlock as an example, there were, you know, a half a dozen crew members who were really just they were fairly experienced at the workings of a ship, but not moving along frozen polar seas, because you have to figure that, that you might end up having to travel across ice. And then the scientists were really varied too. In some of them had zero experience on the ice. And a couple of them had been with Shackleton on an Antarctic voyage, but that was quite different. It was the Nimrod expedition and they were not used to dog sled driving. So yeah, Stephenson was really more suited to small team travel and using the techniques of the, Inupiat uh, native peoples, and he didn't really figure how all these folks were going to, calam- if some calamity occurred, which it did, he hadn't really thought so much about how all of these varied people were going to manage. But I will say that, you know, his decision to hire the Inuit family and the hunters was the most important move that he made because they end up you know, I make the case in the book that everyone, everyone probably would have died without them.
0: Yeah. They turned out to be the most critical element of the whole survival of the expedition.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we can um, talk a little bit if if we get to that point about some of the things that they were able to do, which is really, really remarkable.
0: Yeah, we will actually get to that. Um, so you mentioned that at the beginning, they were separated. Well, there were three ships, and they were going to rendezvous at Herschel Island. And I think they ended up leaving a few weeks later than they had planned. And I think it was in early August. Now, down here, early August is still midsummer. What are the conditions like up where they are? And describe where they are and the kind of conditions that exist up there and what they ran into and what caused them to become separated and, and lose the other two ships.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing. As you mentioned, you know, even in Vermont or Northern Idaho, where I live, which is, you know, above the 45th parallel, you know, August is quite nice. Um, And, you know, but above uh, we're talking about just off the coast of Point Barrow, Alaska, in the Beaufort Sea, you know, heading into the the main Arctic Ocean. At that time of year, you know, you mentioned that they were a little bit late. Well, the window for good weather and open seas is quite short and narrow. And so depending on the season, you could luck out and get some really wide open water, or you could get a bunch of massive... Arctic ice flows beginning to encroach in the region. And what ends up happening is, you know, they take off and really quickly, Captain Robert Bartlett, who I should say a little bit about, I mean, he he was hired because of his resume, which was considerable and impressive. Bartlett had been to near the North Pole with Robert Peary on the, Robert Peary's 1909 expedition. And Robert Bartlett was the captain of this remarkable ship called the Roosevelt, which was an iron-hulled, 1,000-horsepower ship. I mean, it was much more suited than the Carlick to be bashing through sea ice. And Bartlett, initially, he was skeptical about this ship, the Carlick, which was only 129 feet long, and it was in poor condition, and Bartlett made them stop and have the engines overhauled and had the bow retrofitted and reinforced with more sheathing so that they wouldn't get crushed, or at least he was hoping they wouldn't get crushed. So they take off and the weather, they had some really bad luck where, you know, in mid August, they're in the teeth of a, what would we would call an absolute winter blizzard, you know, about like January or February weather conditions, you know, in the lower forty-eight. And they're experiencing it in early to mid-August. So they're just hammered by the storm, and the boats all get scattered. And then very quickly, the Carlock gets what's called beset. So Bartlett had been trying to weave the Karluk through these leads. They're called leads. So they're open water between giant cakes of ice. And you kind of snake your way through like a labyrinth. And it's hard to go straight, but... Bartlett was very good at this, still, really soon after they take off and have lost the other two ships, they get encased in a mile and a half square of ice, and quite quickly, the Carlick is unable to navigate under its own power, and it is just drifting in the middle of a giant chunk of ice, and it's at the mercy of the wind and current that's blowing this ice flow willy-nilly.
0: So this is the beginning of the conditions that just keep getting worse as they managed to continue heading north, and they were separated from the other two ships, and they never reconnected with them. What ended up happening that prevented the meetup with the other ships?
1: Right. So it's interesting that you mention that. It's because this this journey starts poorly and gets worse you know um i will say it's punctuated by moments of of joy and giddiness and fun because you know they they spend quite a bit of time on the ship so after the carlock is beset and encased in ice it's floating and now this is not uncommon um However, what they notice pretty quickly is that it's, it's floating out and toward the middle of the Arctic Ocean, and that's not ideal because it's going away from land. So a, a couple of crucial elements happened within the first month and a half of the journey. And, and the main one is that you've got a number of the wrong scientists on the Carluk. Stephenson himself is on board, and Captain Bartlett is captaining the ship. You've got a, a sort of half dozen other scientists who were, a couple of whom were supposed to be on the other ships but they end up be you know they have to sort of deal with what the conditions are and and they're trying to do some science they're dredging the seas for and finding some creatures that they've never seen before and you know they're taking measurements but as the ship begins to leave the northern shore of Alaska stephenson in late september He decides that he's going to... They're still within striking distance of the Alaskan coast. And Stephenson makes this controversial decision to take one of the Inuit hunters and two of the scientists and a photographer and strike back toward land. They're like 10 to 15 miles off the North Shore of Alaska at this point. And he says they're going on a caribou hunt. Well, he'd previously said that there weren't many caribou left in that area, but nonetheless... That's what his rationale was. He tells Bartlett and he leaves him a long letter telling him that he'll be back within 10 days to two weeks if no accident occurs, is how he phrases it. And he tells Bartlett to light coal fires around the the car look so that they can maybe find their way back to it. But more bad luck. And within a day after Stephenson leaves the ship, this massive storm hits with gale force winds and snow and sleet and fog. And Stephenson gets stranded on a little island right off the coast of Alaska, and the carlock begins careening at between twenty-five and sixty miles a day out in toward the northwest, toward the East Siberian Sea, toward Siberia essentially. And when the fog finally lifts, Stephenson is sitting on this little island and he can't get to the shore quite yet. And he looks out and the and the ship is, his flagship of the expedition is gone. And so at that point, I leave Stephenson in the narrative. I start toggling back and forth between what Stephenson is doing. And then my main interest is in what the members of the Karlick are doing, because now they've got a big ordeal on their hands. Now, in fairness, the ship is well provisioned. So they have enough food for over a year. But the problem is that you can't really account for the behavior of the ice, and so as the Karlik is drifting, they spend like four months drifting out toward the northwest, and it's sort of spooky and foreboding because they they have all these captains' logs from other journeys that have taken place, and in those days, Tonya, the mortality rate of Arctic expeditions was fifty percent. You know, if you if you got on one of those ships, there was a fifty percent chance you weren't coming home. And there's these incredible scenes that that I have from the uh, journals of the members of the ship, where they're describing reading these logs from Captain DeLong, who was in a ship called the Jeanette, that uh, in 1879, it was floating in almost the identical trajectory of this drift, because that's the prevailing current there. And, you know, they get crushed and is this whole, uh, you know, a book was written about it, a number of books, but um, it's really harrowing and many people die. So these members of the Karlick are sitting at night under lamplight reading about these other, you know, harrowing journeys where most people died. And so you get this foreshadowing that this is going to be grim. But as they're floating along for the first few months, you know, they spend Christmas on the ship and they, they go out onto the ice and this Norwegian member named Bjorn Maman, uh teaches the other scientists how to ski and they have Christmas dinner and there's, there's music and, you know, they're trying to make the best of it. But of course, by now the Arctic long night has set in where the sun has, has set and it's not going to return until February. So there's this looming, you know, cabin feverish kind of depression. And and Bartlett is doing his best to make sure the members of the expedition are busy and, you know, doing work to the extent that they can and getting exercise. But they're drifting along and they begin to become encroached on by massive ice flows. And all the while, Bartlett understands that there's a very good chance that the ship is going to be crushed.
0: So as this is happening. Tell us about what life was like on the car look, because as you mentioned, these are extreme conditions. They do have provisions for over a year, but they're up in extreme cold weather. They're in the middle of like a three or four month long night. And, you know, the psychological state of people who are not used to that gets very tenuous. So, yeah. What was life like on the car look? Because they're all, you know together on this fairly small ship and they have to deal with each other as well as the conditions.
1: Right. That. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, it's it's a little crowded because the ship was over packed to begin with. You know, they have on the top decks, they have these umiacs, which are skin boats that, that were 20, 25 feet long. They have a bunch of canoes on top. They have like thousands and thousands of pounds of coal. Um, but in the cabins themselves, so, you know, there's a kitchen, you know, the galley, and they have um, areas for eating food. And then the crew themselves are in the bow area, and the scientists are aft. But there's a lot of intermingling. And, you know, there's a bit of infighting, because the the scientists don't really want it. They came to do science. But Now they're just stuck on a ship and they're having to do a bunch of work that is they view as below them. And the crew members are, for the most part, you know, not extremely educated and they kind of resent these college educated scientists. But Bartlett manages to kind of sort that stuff out by you know, they organize like some sports festivals out on the ice where, you know, they are having fun competitions and tug of wars and um obstacle course races and things to diversions, uh, I would call them, because Bartlett understood fully from previous expeditions that, you know, in conditions like this where it's dark and close quarters, people can actually literally lose their minds and go crazy and, and mutiny and you know, have violence on one another. So he does a very good job of keeping everybody busy. I mean, they do fire drills in the event that a fire breaks out and, you know, everybody, once they're drifting and he understands they might get crushed, sometimes as the ice is encroaching, he he actually goes, Bartlett organizes these drills in which everyone gets together and takes all, you know, a year's worth of food, supplies, fuel off the ship and down onto the ice so that they'll be ready to live on the ice if if the ship does get crushed, and it's a good thing he did that because uh, ultimately they end up having to act very quickly. But yeah, the life on the ship is, um, you know, it's it's tough. But there are some really cool human moments too. I mean, uh, there's a Scottish schoolmaster who came along as magnetician, a man named William McKinley, and he befriends the. Inuit family, and he realizes that if we're going to get along, he should learn their language and they should learn more English. I mean, Curlook, the father, knew a bit of English, but as a hunting guide. So McKinley starts these evening classes, you know, um, a couple, three nights a week, and he's teaching them, the family, English, and they're teaching him their language. And it's reciprocal because auntie, who is the wife of Curlook, has been hired to sew Arctic clothing. And so she's got all these like piles and piles of skins that Stephenson brought on board. And she's been sewing daily, tirelessly, making clothes and boots and mittens. And so she teaches the other. She can't do it all on her own. I mean, it's, it's too much. And so she ends up teaching a number of the crew members how to sew Arctic clothing Two And they also begin building sleds because they had only so many sleds and they know they might need more if they get crushed. And so Bartlett puts a number of men, um, this one man named John Hadley, who was one of the more experienced men in in moving along the ice, and he ends up building, they build two sleds. So everybody's staying pretty busy as they're drifting, but the ice begins to really, really impinge on the ship is what's the problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And at one point they get completely stuck in it. And one thing we didn't mention is that on board they also have third about thirty sled dogs.
1: Right. That's- yeah. So <laughs> you know uh, it's pretty cacophonous, really. I mean, you've got thirty sled dogs, and you know they're essentially wild animals. They they come to food, but that's about it. You know, and they're violent. There are the fights break out all the time over food, you know, puppies are being born here and there. And so Bartlett has the men build these kennels, their little, little igloo ice shelter kennels, so that some of the time the dogs are off of the ship, unless the weather is really severe, and then they'll bring them back up on board. But yeah, you know, it's kind of a mess, you know. And so what ends up happening is that, Right after Christmas, right around New Year's Day, they begin to really get crushed by the ice. And and Bartlett orders all the materials that they have sacked up on deck to be brought down on this flow that is about a couple hundred yards from the ship. And they begin building shelters there and also storing thousands of pounds of food and gear and sleds, and they tether the dogs and Bartlett is preparing for the worst. And so in January, and you know, it's funny, I, I I was always a little nervous about spoilers. But then I told my editor, you know, I don't really want to say what happens to the carlock, And he's like, look at the cover <laughs> of the book. It's like, it's not going to go well for the carlock, And it also says so on the inside flap jacket. So I'm okay revealing because th- the point at which the carlick gets crushed is not, you know, again, that's about like a third of the way through the uh terror that is about to ensue. But the Carlet gets crushed, and thank goodness Bartlett has had the wherewithal to, you know, have the men and and the uh Inuit family build these shelters. And they they name this place Shipwreck Camp because the ship ends up getting crushed and and there's a really incredibly dramatic scene. It's almost like Bartlett knew that this was going to be a book later or a movie because he orders everyone off the ship. I mean, these giant fangs of ice have crushed through the hull of the wooden Carlock, and water is pouring in. And Bartlett goes up into the galley and he's got this phonograph and he's playing. He had like 150 records and he's playing records and as the water's rushing in, it's a great scene. And he ends up putting on Chopin's funeral march and he's the last one aboard the ship and everyone else is down at shipwreck camp watching this all happen. And then he has the water comes up to the top deck. He steps off the deck and onto the ice and moves away from this maw of ice. And he watches as the ship sinks and, you know, the steam spout is the last thing to go down and there's a giant puff of smoke and then it's just Bartlett and, you know, about 22 members standing on the ice wondering what's next what the hell are we going to do now
0: and again this is in the middle of the long arctic night
1: absolutely so you've got like perpetual twilight i mean it's not pitch black and i will say that there are luckily for them and you know punctuating this long night is these resplendent displays of the aurora borealis which if anybody has ever seen that you know it's Uh, unbelievable curtains of fluorescent green and crimson. And so they do have some spectacular celestial activity that they, you know, that sort of diverts them from this perpetual twilight, but yeah, you you never get full sun at all. I mean, and so when the ship goes down, it's early January, 1914. And Bartlett knows that he, he has a general idea that there is a landmass called Wrangell Island, a little bit west and south of where they are, maybe 120 miles. And he had seen it a couple of times from the crow's nest while they were drifting. So he realizes that he's going to have to wait. They're going to have to live on this ice flow shipwreck camp, at least until March when the sun has returned enough that you can safely travel by day. And so that becomes the next plan is how do I get these you know a couple of dozen people 30 sled dogs and a number of members who have never traveled across ice over this moving frozen polar sea to the relative safety of Wrangell Island which he knows a little bit about from this book called the American Coastal Pilot but Wrangell Island has only been landed upon to his knowledge, once in history, and it was actually a couple of times, but no, there's no permanent inhabitants of Wrangell Island. There are no trees there, and he's hoping that there will be game and, and driftwood for fires. So then the plan becomes, okay, how do we get from shipwreck camp to Wrangell Island? So Bartlett is really methodical about knowing, okay, here we are you know, on an ice floe, floating, no ship we've got food and shelter. What's the next move? And he's always really just thinking about the members of the expedition that remain and how he's going to save them. That's really, he's very singularly focused in that respect.
0: Mm -hmm. So tell us about the, the changing ice conditions and how dangerous they can be and what they actually encounter.
1: Right. So, oh, man, it's this is one of my favorite sections of the book. I've been in Greenland, been out in fjords, in boats on zodiacs where, you know, there's giant slabs of ice and icebergs moving around. And it's, it's just absolutely terrifying because, you know, any wrong move and if you fall in the water, you're likely to drown very quickly. Um, the polar sea here is massive. Think about like a giant jigsaw puzzle of ice pieces that at this time of year are fairly well knit together or frozen together, but they're constantly moving and shifting and cracking and fissuring so that, and and also many people think of the polar seas as being kind of flat and ice rink-like and smooth when they are anything but. You know, they're shorn by, you know, 60 to 90 mile an hour winds at times. So there are huge drifts that freeze in place and then more complicated there are these things called pressure ridges which as giant bodies of ice careen and bash together from different directions almost like tectonic ice plates they rupture as they meet and something has to give and so they form like ice mountain ranges that are up to 100 feet high so Bartlett decides we're gonna have to create this sort of trail Ice trail from where they are to Wrangel Island, or at least to these pressure ridges that he has seen with his binoculars. And to do that, they build a series of igloos along the way, and then they begin to set out in teams with dog sleds pulling food, fuel, and some tents. But they build igloos every night, and what they encounter is moving ice. Where, like sometimes, they'll you build an igloo, and in the middle of the night. The floor of your igloo just ruptures and opens, and you and so everybody sleeps in their clothing at all times, and then you have to scramble out of the igloo and run to some relatively safe promontory, and you know it, it's loud, it's violent and cacophonous, and I mean you're talking about if you if you ever listen to ice, you can actually go on YouTube and listen to the fracturing ice it, it moans and it whines and it's like sirens at times, and I will say though there's a there's an incredible beauty to it too. Uh, there are places where the ice, as the wind works on it, it, it creates these wild formations like gargoyles. Sometimes they looks like gargoyles or dinosaurs. It has brilliant colors like emerald and tourmaline, you know, where it's just polished from the wind. And so you, you've got these men and this family of Inuits and this other one hunter who are moving their way across this moving ice. And it's kind of a terrifying beauty, I would call it.
0: So on this journey toward Wrangell Island, they encounter a series of these, what you call pressure ridges, where they have to climb these ridges that you say are sometimes as high as 100 feet tall. So how do they get the sleds up those ice mountains and through?
1: Yeah, it's really impressive. I mean, you know, it takes a number of weeks. And when they reach the pressure ridges, the members are, you know, they're tired, they're hypothermic, they're, some of them are frostbitten, and they're hungry, but Bartlett knows that they have to make their way through and so, what they, they've used some really innovative techniques. I mean, they they have pickaxes and ice axes and shovels. They have a bunch of tools. And Bartlett decides that the only way you you know they they reconnoiter um, from north to south to see if there's a a place where the pressure ridges are lower. But they realize it's miles away in either direction. So they have kind of got to go through it. And so they they hack this trail like a switchback trail maybe three to four feet wide in teams they begin hacking up through the ice and one of the things they do as you mentioned is some of these ridges are really high like 100 feet and so they're also they're towing these big sleds and they're trying to mush the dogs up through there and on the other side of a pressure ridge you know you've got the same thing but it's 100 feet cascading down you know like a small mountain so they end up tying a ship line between two sledges, and they'll get one to the top and send it down the other side of the ridge. And at that time, it's pulling, like a pulley system, it's pulling another sledge up to the top. And when that gets to the top, they untie it, and then they have to do that all again. And it takes them, I think, four days to hack their way through these pressure ridges after a couple of weeks. Uh, journey to get there. And then once they're on the other side, there's about a 30-mile stretch of lower-pressure ridges until they reach Wrangell Island.
0: And you mentioned how they they start out with well over a year's supply of food, but on their journey to Wrangell Island, they can only carry a limited amount of supplies on these, these sleds. So tell us about that.
1: Right. So Bartlett was really clever to have built those other sleds, the Peary style sleds, while they were on the Carlick. And so when they leave Shipwreck Camp, they have to decide okay, with X number of dogs per sled and members walking, we can only take, you know, six to 800 pounds of food, fuel, and gear per sled. So they're going to have to abandon a whole bunch of food at shipwreck camp, which is really, you know, it's it's a hard choice, but that's how it's going to have to be. And understanding that uh, Bartlett was really smart and he dispatches some of the members, a couple teams, a couple of times. He sends them back to toward shipwreck camp. But you know, that is a drifting piece of ice. So it's really a dangerous proposition, but he sends them back with empty sledges to go get more. But you're right. He knows that there's only a finite amount of food they're going to bring to Wrangell Island. And if they make it there, uh, it's uncertain whether they're going to be able to procure game. I mean, he has read that there are seals and polar bears and Arctic foxes and walrus in the spring, but there's no guarantee even though they do bring along rifles and pistols and ammunition, there's no guarantee how much they're and how skillful their hunting will be. And so, yeah, it's a it's a risk, and they don't have enough to last until rescue might come. So that's the other part of this that I guess I'll I'll, I'll say that they do in fact make it. Most of them, not all, make it to Wrangell Island. And there's some drama around a couple of groups that don't make it to Wrangell Island, and I'll just leave it at that. But those who do are in very poor condition. I should say everyone is in pretty poor condition except Kuraluk and his family, who are in great shape, it seems. And Kadok Tovik. Kadok Tovik is the 19-year-old hunter who was also hired to help. And he's in pretty good shape. So they get to Wrangell Island, like March 10th of 1914. And Bartlett assesses, the the island is 100 miles off of northern Siberia, and it's about 90 miles wide and maybe 50 miles top to bottom. It's kind of a tortoise-looking island above northern Siberia. And they're really pleased to find that there's a ton of driftwood. So they at least will be able to build fires. They do also have fuel, liquid fuel, with them, some not enough. And then they have food and and McKinley uh, has been entrusted with knowing like how much gear they have and food and everything. So they do their inventory and realize, okay, we have enough to last till like maybe June. But Bartlett understands that nobody's come. First of all, no one in the world knows where they are except them. And nobody's coming to Wrangell Island. The whaling industry is in decline. And It's pretty remote anyway, and so the only way anyone's going to come there is if Bartlett can get word to the world that there are the survivors of the Karlick stranded there. And so Bartlett has to make this decision very quickly because the members are in pretty grim shape when they arrive at Wrangell Island. A number of them are frostbitten, a number of them are hypothermic, and then they also are suffering from this mysterious malaise that It's like a swelling sickness. Their limbs are swelling grotesquely and they don't know why. But so at that point, Bartlett has to decide if he's going to take someone and go himself on this epic thousand mile journey to try to get across this strait called Long Strait, 100 miles of ice to northern Siberia and then along the Siberian coast for hundreds and hundreds of miles until he can get across the Bering Strait and back to Alaska where he might be able to send a telegram to the Canadian government reporting that there are members of the Canadian Arctic expedition who are stranded on Wrangell Island. And that's sort of where the next portion of the book is really kind of like Lord of the Flies on a rocky, ice-bound island.
0: So before we get to the Lord of the Flies part of the story, describe a bit of that journey that Captain Bartlett takes. And he, he takes one of the Inuit members, Originally, I think he wanted to take McKinley, or or maybe it was McKinley who wanted to go. Talk about that and then some of that journey.
1: Right. So, yeah, actually, it wasn't McKinley. Um, It was this Norwegian who I developed a great fondness for, not only because his diaries are so well-written and touching and honest, but he was a really superb Norwegian ski champion, a Nordic ski champion. And so Maman ends up getting injured early on. He dislocates his knee, and this becomes a recurring problem. So Maman would have been the, the right choice, probably. This other scientist named George Mallock wants to go, but he's starting to lose his mind a little bit. and He's becoming irascible and erratic, and he does a couple things that make Bartlett Certain he's not the choice. And then Bartlett has to choose between Kataktovic, who, if he stays on Wrangell Island, he's going to be really useful in terms of procuring game, but he also knows how to run dogs and he needs him to help navigate the ice. So within two days, March 12th or so, 1914, Bartlett tells everyone, okay, I want you all to set up a couple of different camps, maybe 30 miles away from each other. And trying to hunt seals out on the ice and find whatever food you can and check in with each other every once in a while. Send one group to the very southern, southeastern point of Wrangell Island, this place called Rogers Harbor. And that's where I will try to send rescue if I get through. And then Bartlett takes off with Catech and a small dog team, say a half dozen dogs and a sled on this journey that becomes, I mean, really, you could write a whole book just about that journey. It's incredible. Because he has to circumnavigate Wrangell Island first, and then start out onto the ice. And he's just done that whole ordeal going from shipwreck camp to Wrangell Island, and understands that this is, you know, it's not going to be easy, and they're going to have encounters with open leads. And also, I should mention, there are numerous polar bear encounters. And it's one of those instances where you know, people always ask me, well, why didn't they just hunt polar bears? Well, the polar bears are actually hunting them, you know, because (laughs) they're, they're walking along on the ice, sometimes dragging dead seals in their sleds and polar bears feed on seals. And so the polar bears are like following, tracking them for miles and miles. And then sometimes when Bartlett and Catatobic are encamped in an igloo, they'll hear the dogs barking ferociously outside and they like scramble out of the igloo, crawl out. And there's giant polar bears looming right over the dog sleds.
0: It's the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community
1: Radio. And, you know, they have to shoot them so that they, because they need the dogs, they also need the food. So you've got these incredibly violent encounters with polar bears. And then Bartlett and Kataktovic have to get across this ice, and they'll come to open leads where... One will go a couple miles one direction, the other will go a couple miles the other direction to see if they can find a place where it's narrow enough to cross, and then they'll fire a pistol in the air. The other guy will go meet up with him, and then they scramble across, you know, waist deep in this slushy, frozen water, and then drag the dogs across and continue on their way. It's never really a straight line. And then once they finally make it to northern Siberia, one of the most interesting sections, I think, of this journey is that they come across the Chuchki people. And these are a reindeer herding people that live along the north coast of Siberia. And without these people, again, no one on Wrangell Island would have lived because they end up taking care of Bartlett and Kataktovic. They feed them, they give them shelter in these aronkas, they're kind of skin covered wooden structured huts. And then they also guide them sometimes giving them dogs and they guide them on like a 700 mile journey toward the Southeast. And it's, it's an amazing sequence. I I cover that all in about like a chapter or two, because, you know, you've got to keep getting back to what's happening to the folks on Wrangell Island, but it is really an impressive journey. It's one of the most underrated journeys in Arctic and polar history, I think.
0: Yeah. There are just so many threads, so many harrowing and fascinating threads throughout this particular story.
1: Well, it ends up being a pretty, pretty long book anyway, but um, I've been told it moves quickly because I wrote short chapters and move back and forth between Bartlett, the people on Wrangell Island. And then periodically I touch base with Stephenson so that you know what's going on with him or not going on. And, so that way, uh, it kind of moves pretty quickly, even though there's a lot happening.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things that I found so enjoyable about this book and your last book, Labyrinth of Ice, is how well you bring us along through this story through your writing and make the story so compelling. Um, and you're a writing teacher, and I would love, you know, as a little side diversion. Talk about what you would consider to be the secret of writing these kind of stories in a way that makes them so compelling.
1: Oh, well, Tonyo, thank you very much for saying that. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I would say it's a combination of things. One is there's an old adage that I think William, the, the, the uh, Montana writer William Kittredge told my good friend Kim Barnes, who was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, when she was working on her thesis, And she was kind of stuck. And he said, just tell the story. (laughs) And that seems really simple, but it's actually true. You know, what I try to do is, first of all, is create scenes, right? So I think about it in a way, what it would be like if I were watching this on a screen, right? What would I want to see in a movie and then try to write it? that way. So there's a lot of visuals, of course, you know, you've got landscape that is incredibly dynamic. And so I try to really, really nail the landscape so that the reader feels like that they can see it, they can smell it, it's tactile, they can feel that cold. And I really, really put a lot of effort into my description of the landscape. And, you know, I also will say that research is probably the most underrated element of this. You know, obviously, there's lots of imagination that takes place in fiction writing, but also in fiction and, and in nonfiction, the, the research is crucial so that you know the story better than anyone when you begin to tell it, and then that you feel like you've been there already, So, and you can really convey that to the reader I'll also say that I benefit immensely, at least in these last two books, from the diaries of the surviving members, because I really lean on their language and their quotes. And so it almost feels like it's dialogue. In that respect, the reader gets the sense that they really get to know who these people are. And so in terms of the reader caring, if you develop characters so that the reader feels like they know them and care about them, then the things that happen to them will have an emotional impact. And to me, that's what really sets, you know, good writing apart is that there's an emotional investment. And so when, when someone is starving and being, you know, fed condensed milk out of a can by one of his comrades in his last dying breast, you know, there are many times where I, I, I sat here and wept at my computer keyboard, you know, because like I was so moved by what happened in the story. And then I try to, I try to convey that to the best of my abilities so that the reader feels that too, you know? And, and so those are just a couple of the ways that I hope to do it. And when it works, you know, I'm really happy for that.
0: So in these diaries, could you give us a sense of some of the insights that you had into some of the crew during some of these more harrowing moments?
1: Sure. Yeah. And those are really, really important because not all of it makes it onto the page of my book, but much of it does. And what I found really moving is that, and particularly uh, William McKinley, his diary is hundreds of pages of long and incredibly accurate. I mean, accurate, I say, because it, it jibes with what other members are saying. But also, you know, I'm picturing these guys, you know, often it it was written on the ship, but then once they're on the ice, they're writing their recollections in igloos and in dome tents, uh, you know, in just like grim conditions. But you get these internal thoughts and the fears, sometimes the vulnerabilities, right? So in their own diaries, they'll talk about the fear of death. Often they remark that they don't think they're going to make it, but they... They'll try to have hope, you know, and faith. Many of them are faithful men. And they talk about also other members of the expedition. And it's like, they're really honest where they'll say, oh, that guy's losing his mind. You know, I don't trust him. I don't know what he's going to do. He's really unstable. Or, you know, a particular character will say that this other one's not pulling their weight. And Maman's journals are really, really moving because he has these grand plans. Bjorn Maumann comes from a Norwegian exploration tradition that includes this man named Fridtjof Nansen, who's a national hero, and Amundsen, who is a national hero, and Mamen wants to become one of those. He's plans in his diaries, he tells us that he's planning to make it back home and get together funds and a group and do his own expedition, and he wants to become like Nansen and Amundsen. But You know that his chances are slim because of his condition, and that just makes it all the more poignant.
0: You know, I found it pretty amazing how these people wrote so consistently under these terrible conditions where they would have to take their mittens off to write, you know, under extreme cold where their fingers are freezing. So they're putting their fingers and their lives at risk to do this writing and yet, they—at least some of them—wrote a tremendous amount. You know, they cataloged everything that happened in writing, and I just found that amazing.
1: Yeah, it's really impressive. There's a scene in which McKinley is uh, before the shipwreck and everything. There's a scene in which McKinley is a couple hundred yards from the ship, or at one point he—he's just right on the on the rail, and he's writing in his journal, and he's also trying to to draw pencil sketches of the aurora borealis and he realizes he gets so enthralled by the aurora that he drops the pencil and he realizes that his hands are frozen he's been so enraptured by this and then he you know has to run back into the cabin and stoke the fire and you know get blood flow back into his hands but yeah the dedication to that i mean there was a pretty large tradition of keeping journals and because they're a scientific uh, originally they were a scientific expedition they had been contractually bound to keep records so that's part of it but you know once stephenson has gone it's more i think for posterity they understand uh, i think that writing of a diary is also in a way it's the idea of keeping a record of your life of keeping yourself alive should this diary be found because a lot of times there was quite a bit of doubt of whether they were going to make it. And in fact, for some of the members, that's also very moving where you you see their last dispatch, you know, and it might just be a partial thought or a fragment. And then it's like, that's the end of their story.
0: Uh-huh. So you said that they had a, enough food for June. Talk about the food that they had and, you know, the cooking challenges they had and also the hunting conditions, because even though they had food, there were issues with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, that's one of my favorite parts to write about. I grew up as a bird hunter primarily, but I'm very fascinated in in hunting and, and gathering of food. But yeah, they run out of food relatively quickly when they reach Regal Island, and they make some attempts to get back to shipwreck camp to get more. But it doesn't work out. And so the members who are stranded on Wrangell Island realize that they're going to have to fend for themselves. And they have, you know, hundreds of pounds of pemmican, this sort of uh, Arctic staple of dried meat, fat, and berries. But a diet of straight pemmican has some dietary deficiencies that rear up. So they end up having to really be innovative in their hunting techniques. So there's basically seals, an occasional polar bear, and then there are these shorebirds that are in massive numbers. They're called oaks. they're mures. And they're, they're nesting on these cliffs near where they have camped on the Northern coast of Wrangell Island. And so some of the members, you know, make daily forays and it's a long way. So they have to hike like five miles to these cliffs and then go try to shoot shorebirds. And because they have a limited amount of ammunition, They end up, and they're also stealing the eggs from these nesting birds if they can. They end up having to resort to all these techniques like, okay, let's try netting them. And they net ducks in the water by, you know, they found this net from the ship and they're able to throw that net over maybe 50 ducks at a time and and reel them in. And then they're having to go out farther and farther onto the ice and hunt seals and really only Kuriluk and this man named John Hadley who came from Point Barrow are useful seal hunters because it takes a lot of time and you know if you shoot a seal that sometimes the seal will just float and it's you can't go get it because they didn't have a they didn't have a kayak yet they end up building one but they use this really innovative technique with this thing called a manic which is a weighted ball with spikes on the end that's hooked to a long line and you, you know, throw that thing around your head like a lasso, throw that manic out beyond the floating seal and then snag it and reel it into the ice shore. So they're doing that and not getting enough. There are also some bearded seals, which are really big, and they managed to get a couple of bearded seals and Auntie uses every single part. It's really incredible how industrious they are with what they do get. And so she'll... Skin out the seal, use every part, and then they make this stuff called salad oil, which is blubber that's put into little sealskin bags. They cut chunks of blubber and put it inside these little sealskin bags and leave it out for a couple of weeks, and then it ferments, and then they 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 it creates this kind of congealed blubber oil, which they dip other pieces of boiled blubber into. And so, yeah, it's pretty grim. And there are occasional Arctic foxes. And like I said, William McKinley and Kuraluk build a kayak, a skin kayak, with wood that has washed up to shore, and then the sides and and the body of the kayak are made out of stretched bearded seal skin. And poor Kuraluk is the only person who's ever been in one of these, and so When spring comes and the walruses, they can hear the roaring and the barking of the walruses in the bay. He's nominated to be the guy who goes out and has to try to shoot a walrus. And he's terrified because the walrus, you know, they're a couple thousand pounds. They have two to three foot tusks that they use to pull themselves up onto the ice. But he's terrified that, that he's going to get capsized or have his skin boat torn to shreds and then drown. And so it's really, there's a hunting scene with him going after walrus. It's it's pretty dramatic. And yeah, it was really, really impressive. And also it's it's a race against time because while all this is going on, you see these people hunting and trying to make do and they're sort of losing, some of them are losing their capacities and their minds. And then Bartlett is breakneck with Kataktovic trying to get to help. And so I think if I'm right, uh, and some readers have said that, yeah, there's a there's a real uh, sense of tension and urgency and drama as the story comes to a close where will Bartlett make it through and will rescue ships manage to get through the labyrinth of ice to Wrangell Island to save whoever is left?
0: And during this time, the Westerners on Wrangell Island are in terrible, terrible shape. It's interesting how the Eskimos are actually doing quite well.
1: Yeah, and one of them mentions that, like, (laughs) it's funny because the rigors of the conditions don't seem to affect the Inuit people, as partly because they're inured to it from a lifetime of living in the far north, but also, I think, because they take better care of themselves, they understand, you know, how not to become totally soaked and hypothermic. They understand uh, how to keep warm. And, you know, it ends up that Auntie and Kuraluk and that family are in one camp with McKinley. And then there's a number of other crew members in this other camp. And those guys in the other camp begin stealing food. Auntie is much better at extending their stores so she, you know, can make blood soup out of seal's blood and is just much more knowledgeable about how to use food, including, you know, they al- also, Auntie begins jigging for cod in these little, little streams that are running down where they meet the Chukchi Sea. There are these cod, maybe eight inches to a foot long. And she begins using a sewing pin as a hook on a bit of sinew and like going down with the girls and you know, yanking these cod out of the water and getting hundreds of them, which add to their sustenance. And she's they're sharing with the other tent, but the other tent isn't really sharing with them. And so it begins to be a little that's where I mentioned the Lord of the Flies because you got some some thievery and there's a there's an accidental death by gunfire that ends up being questionable about whether it was suicide, an accident or, or murder. Uh, so that's going on, too. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how people behave under extreme conditions.
1: It really is. And that's one of the things that you you see is how there's a great deal of humanity, too, where some members rise above what they ever believed they could to become leaders, and they end up doing things physically and emotionally. William McKinley comes to mind, you know, he's he only weighs about 140 pounds when the trip begins. And he's probably gets down to about 115 or 120 at a certain point. But, you know, he goes on two and three day solo treks from the northern part of Wrangell Island down to the south to check on other members to see how they're faring. And, you know, three days of sleep deprivation and tromping along through blizzards. And, you know, you realize what people have the capacity to endure. That's one of the things I think, That really intrigues me about Arctic exploration and adventure stories of this kind are what humans have the capacity to endure physically, emotionally, psychically, and how they come through it, how they manage to come through it.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask you, what was it about these kind of stories that you find so fascinating that you keep coming back to them?
1: Yeah, you know, for about 10 years, I I covered this sport called adventure racing around the world for this guy named Mark Burnett who created Survivor and The Voice. But Eco Challenge was this multi-sport adventure race that I covered for 10 years as a journalist. And they were simulations of these kinds of historic journeys in a way. They were modern, but they still involved people traveling over hundreds of miles, sometimes trekking, sometimes sailing. Sometimes paddling kayaks, sometimes mountain biking. And I got to know these athletes really well. And I got to go on a number of these journeys too. And I got to see people in small teams navigating through darkness with headlamps and incredibly diminished states of sleep deprivation and, and exhaustion. And, you know, these are modern contrived versions of what the people in these historical expeditions were enduring. But I sort of got an inside look at the mindset of people in duress. And, you know, I also think I really am drawn to historical tales of discovery, which, you know, this journey in Empire of Ice and Stone becomes quite quickly a story of survival. But it began as a story of discovery. And similarly, Labyrinth of Ice and tales about the Northwest Passage and about the first trips to the North Pole. There was so much at the time that we didn't know, and I've always been intrigued by people willing to go where no one else has ever been. And with the full knowledge that they very likely won't return, it's kind of like modern day astronauts, you know? I mean, I think that's the best analog we have for it now is people who go to space because, you know, things can go wrong and you don't really know how it's going to turn out.
0: Right. And if, Something goes wrong, there's very little fallback.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the other thing that fascinates me in Arctic exploration. And it's true also. I mean, I have written about the first European to descend the Amazon in a book I wrote called River of Darkness, where, you know, in 1541, they're going down the Amazon where no Europeans had ever been. And people lived there along the massive waterway, but the Europeans that were there had never gone. And so It's that sense of what's around the next bend of the river or what's around, what's over the pressure ridge. And then also, how are we going to solve these problems that are invariably are going to occur? Who's going to surface as, you know, leadership quality? And then how are we going to work together? Because invariably, you're going to have to work together to get out of this.
0: Mm -hmm. So you're an adventurer and a writer. Which came first and how did you become inspired to become a writer?
1: Oh wow, that's a good question. I mean, it was those things happened kind of simultaneously and early on my my father was an Olympic Nordic ski racer who competed in the 1956 Winter Olympics. That's a whole other whopping story because he came from Louisiana. So he was about as unlikely of a Nordic skier as you could imagine, but he went to Western State College of Colorado in the late forties and got on the ski team there. And the ski coach was a Swede and that team ended up, many of them went to the Olympics. But so he he moved us to a town called Ketchum, Idaho, more known as Sun Valley, Idaho in 1970. It's a ski resort. And my father took us out, mostly me, I was the oldest son, uh, but took us out duck hunting at minus 30 below zero. We were skiers. I would started backcountry skiing in the late 70s and, you know, summiting mountains and skiing down little couloirs in between rocky cliffs. But the writing part, um, I really lucked out because I went to a small private school in Sun Valley, Idaho, that only had 30 students in its first year. And I wrote a story about, uh, actually a hunting story For a creative writing class, there were five students in the class. And I wrote this story. And my teacher, a woman named Julie Hazard, she really liked the story. And she said, you know, you should work on this and try to get it published. And it turned out, this is how lucky I was, there was a local woman whose name was Clara Spiegel, and she was heir to the Spiegel catalog. I'm dating myself, but the Spiegel catalog of Chicago, but she was a writer in her own right and an editor, and she had been on safari with Ernest Hemingway, and she agreed to take me on, and she helped edit this story I wrote for about a month. We worked on it together, and then it got published in the local paper, the Wood River Journal, and at that point, I was 14 years old, and it was sort of the only thing I was ever any good at. I think. And so I ended up going into creative writing at college in Idaho and and did a creative thesis for a master's degree. And then I just have been writing ever since.
0: Well, your story is actually quite fascinating. You're sort of like an Indiana Jones kind of a character because you're, you're a writing and a creative writing professor as well as an adventurer. So there could be a, a whole nother story a more autobiographical thing that that could come out of this at some point.
1: Yeah, well the memoir is coming eventually. I keep getting sidetracked with these other great stories, but I better not wait too long. Lately I've been spending a little too much time at the desk and not enough time getting out there, but I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that I try to do on these narrative histories, which is what I call them that I write, is go to the places that I'm writing about which also is part of why if I get it right, the reader feels like they're there. So as an example, I went down for three weeks in a dugout canoe. I floated down 500 miles of the Amazon with a guide and two other people to get a sense of what it's like there so that if I'm describing it, the reader really feels like they're there too. And I wrote a book called Conquistador about the conquest of the Aztec by Cortez. And so for that trip, I retraced the journey of Cortez and the Spaniards from where they landed at Veracruz up over the mountains and into the Valley of Mexico. And then I went to Greenland a number of years ago to try to follow adventure racers during that. But it really gave me a sense of what it's like in the North. And and now I have a planned trip for a new book that I'm going to be going to Svalbard north of Norway in May to uh, get a sense of what it's like up there for the next book. So, yeah, I try to get out as much as possible when I can and and really get a sense of the on the ground feel of the places I'm describing.
0: Well, I look forward to your your next book or next books. And uh once again, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you about all of this.
1: Tony, I really appreciate it. It's great being on and uh love what you do and uh, yeah, I'll try to pop back when I uh get done with this next one. It's called Realm of Ice and Sky, and it's about the uh, first airships or dirigibles that attempted to fly to the North Pole.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Sounds like another disaster waiting to happen.
1: Yeah, oh, it is. <laughs> it happens.
0: <laughs> what will humans think of next?
1: Yeah, well, Airship 2.0, it's coming. And I think we can talk about that in twenty twenty. Five, maybe.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely look forward to that very much.
1: Me too. Thanks so much for having me again.
0: Well, it's been my pleasure. And uh, until then, be well. You too. Bye-bye.
1: Take care. Buddy Levy
0: is a professor of English and creative writing at Washington State University and an adventurer and writer of adventure and historical narratives. And his new book that we've been talking about is Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Karluk. That's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.